I invite you at this time to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 8, verses 22 through 25. Luke chapter 8, verses 22 through 25. In Gig Harbor, I am preaching through the Gospel of Luke, and I believe you guys are going through uh, Luke uh, yourself and are a bit uh, ahead of us, so I'd like to... Uh, turn your attention back a few chapters from where you, you are at in Luke to Luke chapter 8, verses 22 through 25. If you recall, uh, so far in the first seven chapters or so of Luke's gospel, we have seen the authority of Jesus. We have witnessed Jesus' authority over unclean spirits and demons, his authority over disease, over death itself. We've seen his authority over the Sabbath as he says that I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And now in this passage this morning, we see that Jesus has authority even over the natural world. And the crowds, the crowds at this time, at this period in Jesus' ministry, they are trying to figure out who this man is. Who is this obscure uh, Jewish teacher who came from that no-name village of Nazareth. A few passages before the passage that we are considering this morning, when Jesus raised the young man from the dead, the only son of a widow, the crowds exclaimed after that miracle, A great prophet has risen among us. God has surely visited his people. Shortly after that, John, through his disciples, sent this message to Jesus. Are you the one? Or are we to look for another? No doubt there was a range of opinions about the identity of the Son of Man at this point. But one thing was self-evident. This man had authority. An authority that the people had not witnessed in their own religious teachers and leaders in their day. So please turn your attention to the reading of God's holy inspired word, Luke chapter 8, verses 22 through 25. One day, Jesus got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep, and a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was calm. And he said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this, that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray that he would write this word upon our hearts this morning. O Lord, we thank you that you have not remained hidden, but that you have revealed yourself to us through your written word. We know that this written word has stood the test of time so that your church may be edified 
in this age, this age in which we are apart from our heavenly homeland, the heavenly Jerusalem. So we ask that we w- it would do its intended purpose, that it would comfort us, convict us, and nourish our faith. We ask all these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, we live in a world that is marked by both chaos and order. That is to say, we live in a world that, on the one hand, is marked by the curse of our first parents' fall into sin in paradise, while at the same time, we live in a world that is marked by God's common and preserving grace. We have to hold both of these up together, and at times they're in tension. And so by chaos, I'm referring to those seasons of life when tragedy, pain, and suffering is unleashed upon us. Those times when our expectation for how the world should work are thrown asunder, and the inexplicable occurs. Now, we know that God has created this universe with a certain moral order. And this moral order is is true. It's true according to the nature of things, in a way that's similar to the way that the law of gravity is true according to the nature of things. For example, if one is, is responsible, a virtuous person, they can ordinarily expect that things will go well for them. But on the flip side, if one is irresponsible and full of vice they can expect that they're probably going to have a a pretty difficult life. For instance, if someone's a drunk who lives in the bar and is lazy, they can properly expect life's going to be a bit difficult. But we know that this world is marked by the curse. Romans 8 tells us that it's not just our human bodies that feels the effect of this curse, but even the creation, the world itself, feels the effect of this curse. So this, doesn't, this principle, this moral order, doesn't always work out the way we expect it to work out. Sometimes it's the virtuous individuals that are the recipients of gross injustices, deep trials and tribulations, while it's the individuals full of vice who are the recipients of much prosperity. Many of the Psalms wrestle with this realization. Think of books like Job and Ecclesiastes. And when those instances work, uh, uh, take place, when the, the world doesn't run how we expect it to run, it can, lead, it can shake us. We can become disillusioned to all that is good in this world. That's chaos. And by order, I refer to those instances when the world does operate according to our expectations. We seek to live a virtuous life, we work hard, and we enjoy the fruit of our labor. As one author has put it, order is is the floor beneath our feet and our plan for the day. It's what we can expect, we can lean upon. Now ordinarily, when chaos strikes our life, it leads to the emotions of fear. The emotions of, of depression, anxiety, frustration. And when order is the dominant note in our life, the emotions of joy and peace 
even comfort, oftentimes follow. And now in this passage before us, we are confronted with many of these themes. We're confronted with chaos. We're confronted with order. We're confronted with fear and even comfort. And so the question I'd like to bring to the table this morning for us to consider is this. How do we experience comfort in the midst of the chaos of this life? How do we experience comfort in the midst of the chaos of this life? I believe that our text, this narrative before us, this short narrative, answers that very question. So I'd like us to consider two main points in particular. First, we'll consider when chaos strikes. And then second, we will consider finding comfort in the midst of the chaos. So when chaos strikes, finding comfort in the midst of the chaos. So first, when chaos strikes, you'll notice that this passage begins with Jesus, who's with his disciples, and Jesus has has this suggestion that he puts forward to his disciples that they should take a boat ride across the lake of Gennesaret, or the Sea of Galilee. And the disciples who are presently with him on this boat ride are, are likely the twelve apostles, as well as the three women that we were introduced to at the beginning of Luke chapter 8. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Susanna. So Jesus and the twelve apostles, as well as these three women, they board this fishing vessel as they seek to sail across the Sea of Galilee. Now Luke tells us that not not long after leaving the shore, Jesus falls asleep. Now most of the fishing vessels in that day, or most of the fishing vessels in that day, contained uh, a portion of the boat, a bench off to the side that had a pillow, so that those who weren't on duty could rest and get a little shut eye. And Jesus, as he boards this vessel, he, he makes a beeline for that pillow to get some rest on this this boat ride. And this is an important point that we shouldn't overlook. This tells us that Jesus had a true humanity. Now, of course, we know that Jesus was very God of very God. He, He shared in the same substance of God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. But he also is a true human. And his humanity isn't somehow superior to our humanity. He has the same human nature that we have, except for sin. Which is why we read throughout the Gospels that Christ grew hungry and thirsty, that he got tired and needed rest. And so in this passage, we see that Jesus, who likely was coming off a very busy time of teaching, of meeting with people, interacting with the crowds, he was tired. He needs some rest. And as they're sailing across the Sea of Galilee, as Jesus is is getting some shut-eye, a sudden storm strikes the vessel. Now this was not uncommon for the Sea of Galilee to experience sudden storms that, that come sort of out of the blue. 
And the reason is, is the Sea of Galilee was located 700 feet below sea level, and it was surrounded by hills. And so what would happen is cool air would come off of the hills and meet the warm air which existed above the Sea of Galilee and it would create this windstorm. And that's what this fishing vessel is sailing right into, this, this terrible windstorm. And this storm was so great that it was causing water to seep into the boat. I'm sure that the waves were just crashing against this boat. And the disciples quickly realize that they are in real danger. They're in a, a relatively small fishing boat in the middle of a sea at storm. And their boat is filling with water. Now the sea, you think, see, as we think about the sea, especially in light of the Old Testament, one thing that we see is that in the Old Testament, the paradigmatic picture, representation of chaos, judgment, and even death, was represented in the sea. Think of the Red Sea. The Red Sea, which was judgment upon the Egyptians. Think of the, the flood that existed in Noah's day, which was judgment on the entire earth, which pointed forward to the final judgment, which we are still awaiting when Christ returns. And the sea, being uh, paradigmatic of chaos, judgment, and, and death, this wasn't just true for Israel. This was also true for the, the pagan nations that lived around the nation of Israel. Many of the myths that, we, that have come down to us today that we, can, that we can read from these pagan nations, many of these myths contain imagery of the sea that represents Chaos and judgment and death. Now, it's not surprising that for these ancient people that they thought of the sea as being a representation of such things. There's hardly a, a worse situation to be in than at the mercy of the sea. The unpredictable sea, the powerful sea, the sea that can be deadly. And so as we consider this narrative before us, this, this narrative with the disciples and Jesus stranded at sea during the storm, this is the quintessential picture of chaos. The small fishing vessel at the mercy of this tyrannical storm. And while this is going on, Jesus is still sleeping. You can imagine the disciples at this time, they're, they're panicking. And they realize, wait, Jesus, this was your idea in the first place to get on this boat and travel across the sea. As, as we feel our, our lives are slipping away, you're sleeping. Imagine the disciples who, again, we don't know exactly what they knew of Jesus' identity at this point, but they... If they didn't think he was the God-man, they at least knew he was a very powerful and great prophet. And they're thinking, how can you be so oblivious to this dire circumstance that we are in? We are about to die, and you are getting rest. Well, can't we relate to the disciples in this moment? 
When the metaphorical storms of life come our way, when, when chaos is unleashed upon us, I think we can oftentimes feel as if God just went down for a nap. Our trials do feel like God's nap time. As if, as if Christ is completely oblivious to the dire circumstances that we are walking through. I'm sure that the disciples in this moment, that there's a certain parallel between the amount of water that was filling their boat and the amount of fear that was filling their hearts. And this shouldn't surprise us. Because as I mentioned at the beginning, when chaos comes forth in our life, the normal response is fear, is anxiety, is even anger and frustration. However, if that's the normal response, how then do we, how then do we break forth from that, that typical cycle? How do we find comfort in the midst of chaos? So I'd like us to, to now consider directly that question that I posed at the beginning. How do we find comfort in the midst of chaos? So this leads us to my second point, finding comfort in the midst of of the chaos of our lives. Well, in verse 24, you'll you'll notice that that these disciples are terrified. And they go to Jesus. Master, Master, we are perishing. Wake up. Do something. And Jesus, he wakes up. Notice what he does. Luke tells us he rebukes the storm. He rebukes the storm and, and the water becomes, becomes glass. Calm ensues. Already in the first seven chapters of Luke, we've encountered the powerful word of Christ. Christ with but a word can raise the dead. Christ with but a word can heal disease. His word is powerful. And here we see that his word controls the forces of nature. And this word that Luke uses for rebuke, in the original language of the Greek New Testament, this word that Luke uses, it's already been used in Luke's gospel. For instance, in chapter 4, we encountered uh, Simon's mother-in-law who had a fever. And Jesus goes to her, and Luke says he rebukes that fever. And the fever leaves her. Then shortly after that, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus is said to have rebuked unclean spirits and demons. The same word that's being used here in our narrative. And when you look at this word then, and how it's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, we see in Psalm 105, Psalm 105 verse 9, the psalmist says that God rebuked the Red Sea and it stood, and God's people passed through. So Jesus here, as he rebukes this storm, Luke wants us to know that this is the same rebuke that God used when he caused the Red Sea to stand. This is the God-man who is speaking. This is the divine word of God that contains power. Power over even the natural occurrences of this earth and universe. Well, after rebuking this storm, 
bringing about calm and order once again. In verse 25, we read something striking. He, Jesus responds to these disciples who are in his boat. He says, where is your faith? And the disciples, we are told that, that they were afraid. Now, isn't that striking? Just moments before, these disciples were, were likely trembling because of the, the raging storm that was before them. And Jesus rebukes the storm, brings about calm, and the disciples are still afraid. That's striking, isn't it? And there's this dialectic that we see throughout the scriptures. This dialectic between, on the one hand, desiring the presence of God, and on the other hand, when the presence of God comes, being absolutely terrified by that presence. For instance, listen to how one author puts it. He says, God is both our greatest problem and solution. His presence is the worst news and the best news. The most fearful threat or the most cheerful comfort. From Genesis to Revelation, there is this struggle, this awkwardness, ranging from indescribable joy to utter terror when we talk about God's presence or face. Again, we see that here in this passage. The disciples, just moments before trembling because of the raging storm, were longing for God's presence to manifest itself. For Jesus to wake up and do something. And when he does, they realize they have a, a new and even more profound fear because they now encounter someone who is more powerful than this raging storm. Someone who may be the God-man. So being in the presence of God, being in the presence of the divine is first and foremost not a comforting thing. Rather, it just brings more chaos. Judgment. For sinful people to be in the unmediated presence of a holy and righteous God is not good news. Chaotic judgment will only ensue. So the question that comes is, how does the presence of God, how does that become a comfort for us and not a terror? I believe that from the standpoint of our narrative, the answer to that question comes from what Jesus is still going to do in his death and resurrection. I believe that he is foreshadowing those great and momentous events in this narrative. Now, of course, the disciples likely wouldn't have picked up on this foreshadowing, but for us, as we look back upon this narrative, I think we can, we can say with confidence that Jesus is foreshadowing the climax of his ministry. As I mentioned, in the context of the Old Testament, the sea is the paradigmatic picture, representation, of chaos, judgment, and death. And Jesus here, willingly, by his own volition, chooses to enter the chaotic waters of the Sea of Galilee, a sea that can churn up a storm in a moment's notice. And when the storm arises, we see that he goes through the midst, the heart of this storm. 
But Jesus rebukes the storm. He triumphs over the storm, as it were, and calmly sails to the other side. So let's think for a moment about the cross. What is the cross? Well, the cross is Christ taking the plunge into the chaotic waters of God's wrath and judgment. It's Christ taking the flood waters of final judgment. It's Christ being our Red Sea for us. That's the cross. I think there's a parallel analogy with how the disciples react when the storm first starts raging to the disciples' reaction after the cross. Notice here in our passage, the storm comes and they're perplexed. They're scared. How can Jesus be sleeping while our lives are slipping away? What's his purpose in this? Remember the disciples after the cross? Depressed, sad, despairing. We thought this was the one who was to restore the kingdom of David. To deliver us from the Romans and now he's dead. What is God up to? See the parallel? Well, what's the resurrection all about? Well, the resurrection is Jesus rebuking death itself. Rebuking this storm of death. Just as here in this passage, he with but a word calmed this storm, the the raging waters of chaos. So too in the resurrection, Christ rebukes death itself. Again, I think there's an analogy with how the disciples react to Jesus rebuking the storm to how the disciples react to the resurrection. Notice that after, in verse 25, after we are told that they were afraid, notice that Luke says that they marveled. And that word, is the same word is used in Luke 24, verse 41. In Luke 24, Jesus, the resurrected Jesus appears to his disciples. And after he reveals his identity to his disciples, we are told that the disciples marveled wondered the power of God in the resurrection. I think we do see the cross and the resurrection foreshadowed in this short narrative in these verses. But I think we do have to reckon with the fact that Christ, in the resurrection, Christ did rebuke death. But, Chaos and death still persist in this age, doesn't it? We still feel the effects of the fall. All of us are going to die if Christ doesn't come back before then. Listen to Revelation 21, verse 1. This is John speaking about the age to come, the new creation that we're looking forward to. And this is what John says. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. The sea was no more. We are looking forward to an age to come when the sea will be completely eradicated. That is to say, all chaos and judgment and death will be gone, and all order will be brought about. That's what we're looking forward to. So, brothers and sisters, the presence of God goes from being a terror to a delight through the work of Jesus on our behalf. And because of this work of Christ, we can be assured that God is for us and not against us. Because Christ 
plunged into the chaotic waters of God's judgment, you can have full confidence that you will never have to take that plunge yourself. Because Christ was forsaken by the Father, you will never be forsaken by the Father. Because Christ rebuked the storm of death, you can have confidence that you have a a future, a glorious future awaiting when all chaos will be turned to order. God, God is for you, not against you. And promises to work all things, to work all the chaos that we experience in our life for good. That is true comfort. That is true comfort. Comfort that we need in this present evil age. Well, you'll notice that this passage concludes with those in the boat asking, who then is this? That he commands even winds and water and they obey him. And we don't know exactly what these disciples were thinking, but it does seem Luke does seem to portray their attitude as being somewhat on the fence still about the identity of Jesus. And so if you are here today and you are somewhat on the fence over the identity of Jesus, look to him, trust him, believe him, rest upon him as the one who took God's wrath for you. As the one who who rose from the dead for you, for your justification, and to promise you a glorious future. Look to Jesus, brothers and sisters. Let us pray. Lord, we give thanks. We give much thanks for our Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks that He came to this earth. He humbled Himself by taking on human flesh, by living in this fallen human, uh, this fallen world. But most of all, we thank You that He took that plunge into the chaotic waters of Your judgment. And that He rose from the dead on the third day, triumphing over the storm of death. We thank you for that, what, what that means for us. That we can be assured that you as our Father, that you are for us, not against us. That whatever you permit in this life, we know that you've already decided how you will turn that for our good. May you increase our faith and trust in you as our God and Father. We ask all these things in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.